We just had Andrew Case on the podcast. And what amazes me about Andrew is the path and the dots you can connect looking back. And he had no idea when he started. After graduation, he went to Xerox as an account executive and with a fellow Xeroid, a buddy at Xerox, a term they had for each other there, he went off and said, let's take the sales training we've learned at Xerox and bring it to businesses that could benefit. We're going to ask for a reasonable fee. And then we'd like a percentage of the lift, the sales lift. So they'd go back to companies after six months to see how well their sales training has helped from a revenue standpoint. The challenge was they realized that sometimes the right person wasn't in the right seat on the sales team. They didn't have the correct personality, behaviors, competencies. So Andrew started to investigate instruments to assess talent fit at these organizations. And that led him to the Caliper profile, meeting Dr. Herb Greenberg and a career. And now he is country manager of Talogy Canada. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Hey, I'm Jordan Harding. I grew up watching my dad put on that suit and tie every morning and go out to successfully climb the corporate ladder. I thought I wanted to be him, but I was wrong. I needed to be me. To do that, I had conversations with incredible people to learn how they figured out this whole thing called life. I learned how they overcome adversity and pick themselves up when they've been knocked down. Now, I'm sharing those discussions with you so you can apply those same learnings to your life. Welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. So it's a pleasure to have Andrew Case, Country Manager of Talogy, um, on the It's Not a Straight Line podcast. Andrew is company. He works with clients including Shoppers Drug Mart, Manulife, SAP, Walmart, Molson Coors. Uh, they've even worked with a stable of professional sports franchises in the NBA, MLB, and NHL. Andrew, I think you joined Caliper Canada in um, in in January of was it two thousand and three, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Jordan. So it's go, it's going back a while, and before that, you were managing director of Case Solutions Business Culture Advisors Limited. You even had some time at Xerox, which we'll get into. I'm very excited for this discussion because what Caliper does is Caliper delivers critical insights to leaders and managers so they can put the right people in the right place at the right time. And I guess on that point, welcome to the show. And what's the connection, Andrew, between Caliper and Talogy? Well, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate the time in advance. Um, Caliper was acquired by Talogy, which is uh, aiming to be one of the largest integrated talent management firms in the world. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it's and it's a huge endeavor. These two firms are decades old. They're research based. Um, we're fascinated with the nature of work and how it ebbs and flows. But most importantly, I think both firms, uh, now Talogy Canada in, in, in our instance, are focused very much on identifying uh, job fit. And, and so this is one of the things that is extremely complicated uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, one, not the least of which, if you're old enough to have been around people for a while, um, you know, you'll quickly understand that 
even if you think you know somebody, um, somewhere down the road, they'll probably surprise you with their behavior in a certain context or instance or what have you. So people, you know, without a doubt are extraordinarily complicated. So to, to, to try and measure their personality and what motivates them and anticipate what their behavior will be is really tricky. Um, the other side of the equation that we're really interested in, which I alluded to, which is the nature of work, is equally you know, complicated. In particular, over the last you know, four or five years, we've all seen um, work life change a lot. So um, the competencies that you know, drive performance in any kind of work, whether it's C-level work uh, or individual contributor work, um, you know, even at an hourly rate, all these things are really quite dynamic. So establishing what is it, you know, what's the secret sauce for fit, that's, that's a tricky business. So that's what we're interested in. That's what we spend our days doing here at Talogy in, in various different ways. It's so interesting, and I can't wait to to dig into that, especially for the listener of the this podcast. You, you speak about how humans are, are complex. What what would we what should we know about you? Like, if we break break it down to the early life of Andrew, I, I see that you went to York. Uh, you spent some time as an account executive at Xerox, which I've heard is an amazing training ground uh, for being an account executive or in sales. What potential did you see in yourself, Andrew, early on? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I didn't have the advantages of, of the instruments that I just talked about, you know, that Talogy uh, have in their arsenal to, you know, build self-awareness. So um, back in that period, not that they weren't available, by the way, it, it's just that I didn't really uh, have the opportunity to investigate those things. So to be honest, I think, you know, I was sort of um, adhering to some norms and the norms that I grew up in, I'm 58 now, but back then it was, you go to school. My parents were very big on you're going to university, whether, you know, you have some other talents. I actually wanted to be a drummer. Um, and, and funny enough, my mom washed that early on in our, in my life, in my life when she said, oh, you don't want to be a drummer. You'll never get a tan, um, <laughs> which was hilarious. But, um, you know, when, so, so what I, when I reflect on it, I think going through high school, then into post-secondary school, these were just things that, you know, were a progression. And you and everybody in my, you know, my friend group, we were all doing that. And so when we emerged out of university, um, you know, this would have been in the late 80s, organizations were generally interested in, in a university graduate, not for the subject matter necessarily. There were business students and everything. I had a, a degree in English uh, literature. So uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, aimed at a you know, specific vocation or anything. The one thing that me and my peers were interested in, though, were, you know, was setting out on our own, you know, having your own apartment, having your own car. 
So all these things, of course, required money. And um, so we aimed for jobs that obviously we were, you know, that were in, uh, in, in our kind of range. And selling sales was widely available to just about any graduate. And the, the appeal of selling at the time was, hey, look, you make more money than, you know, the average person. This was our view. You're going to make more money than the average person, uh, say somebody getting minimum hourly wage. Um, and you're going to be able to have some freedom around how you spend your time. This was the view of it, right? And so funny enough, uh, you know, I, I did get hired at Xerox after, I don't know, five or six interviews. It was pretty tough to get in, probably tougher to get into than to stay in. So, but at the time when I, when I came in, uh, the economy went into a pretty significant recession and I could see my territory in Toronto. It was, I would stand at the corner of Young and Eglinton for anybody that knows Toronto. And I would look east down the street and I could see my entire territory. So this was a really small place. Wow. And the uh, Xerox's go-to-market strategy at the time was, we're going to make sure there's a Xerox, Xerox rep in the door of every business every 30 days. And the, and the thesis was, we'll never miss a buying window if that's the case. We were selling office equipment. So copiers and fax machines and uh, you know, anything, typewriters. These are, con, you know, these are things that are kind of long gone in many ways, but um, they were, you know, they were part of a Fortune 500 cadre of companies that would, uh, uh, I think, do one thing that was really important for us new grads. And that was, they would train us. They mm -hmm. would train us on how to sell. They would obviously train us on, you know, what the product of the day was and its benefits and features and all that stuff. But the selling piece, um, that was critical. And I also had other friends that went into, you know, other areas of selling, commercial real estate and, and so on. And, and as we reflect back on that, I think the biggest difference is, is that those companies today really don't invest anything in the new hire. I'm saying that, you know, quite broadly. Obviously, there are some companies that are really um, strong in that area, but most are not. And so over the past, you know, call it 30 years, corporate, corporate America, just to put a label on it, has um, left that kind of training out. And when I look back, it was really critical because it led to opportunities, at least in my case and the, my friends, as I think about it, we, we got some foundational skills mm -hmm. that were really universal, no matter where you were, you ended up or where, you know, where your next opportunity, you know, lit up. So it was really fortunate that we had, I mean, at Xerox as an example, our, uh, Initial training was three weeks down in Leesburg, Virginia. They had a big, you know, campus and we really, you know, got heavily immersed in sales psychology, sales tactics and strategy and all of it. So, I, you know, I think that was one of the, the critical 
things that was perhaps different than it is today. Um, but you know, I, I think again, as supply and demand of, of um, you know, talent goes, I think we're probably headed back into a period where these organizations are gonna have to pick up the ball again on training and development. I have a question about Xerox, but then I, I wanna just stay on this point for a minute, Andrew. Aside from the pandemic we've just been through and more people working remotely, do you think, and we're putting a broad term on it, but do you think corporate companies that used to do these big immersive training programs, do you think that was a foundation to creating a culture that has been lost? Yeah, it was certainly influential. I mean, I can speak from that that. Xerox point of view, IBM was another company of the day that was really, um, you know, they had very uh, explicit corporate cultures. Um, And culture, you know, I got later into studying the heck out of that. Um, But it's really sort of the basic assumptions that uh, an organization collectively operate by. It's the way they think about the world, right? So, for example, at Xerox, um, we very quickly learned that this is this is going to be hard work. They embrace competitive spirit, so all your sales numbers are going to be on the wall, right, with your name beside it. And um, at the end of each month, and you know the weeks running through the month, you're going to know exactly where you stand, and so will everybody else. There's nowhere to hide. Um, there was, you know, this expectation that we work hard, play hard, that kind of thing. So these things were, you know, quite um, explicit, as I as I said, and they were material because they um, they helped bind organizations mm-hmm. around a collective set of values. Which is which is important, you know, when we start talking about what are the performance outcomes of organizations. Without that kind of glue, um, you know, it it the chances for high performance are less likely. So I think those things were quite critical when I when I look back on it. And Andrew, is there anything from that initial Xerox training? You spoke about the 30 days in the door, which is quite interesting to me. Anything from that training, not to age you, but back when you did it or way back when that you still think of today as a managing director of your company? Yeah, I think about it a lot. In fact, our Talogy, we just had our sales kickoff in Dallas for the Americas and we hired a a training company and, um, it was interesting because this is the first time I've been through some formal sales training again, and nothing's really changed, right? The, um, the method, the psychology, uh, all those kinds of things are, you know, in a different package, but they are the same. And so the, the idea of, uh, in particular, in our world and in the Xerox world, we wanted to talk about value. We, we we didn't want to be focused heavily on price. Of course, price always enters into every, you know, sales situation. But the focus on value and 
the way that you help your client build the value proposition is what's critical. Those are the skills that that I don't think are materially different, you know, from 30 years ago. Yeah, that's a great point. And then how, Andrew, how did you transition from, you know, account executive Xerox and, and you don't have to really go through every step with us, but how did you transition into this world of culture assessment, finding employees that would be the right fit for companies? Like, like how did that happen? Yeah, it came out of, um, when I left Xerox, I left with another Xeroid. We, that's our yeah, name for each other. <laughs> So, uh, cause it was a little robotic. I have to say, you know, that whole culture was really, uh, we all wore blue, blue seat, blue, blue suits, white shirts, you know, every, everything was pretty formulaic in one way, which was part of the success of that culture. But was it, was it um, a tie too in that oh, those yeah. times? Yeah. 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 You know, that, that's the, that's the amazing thing. I mean, we sit here now, I, I don't think I've put on a tie for a, a few years now. Um, so it's interesting, but nevertheless, um, there was a formality about the uniform that, that, you know, it was go time and you are part of an elite group of people that, um, you know, that the industry and the business community recognized. So they did a, you know, a tremendous job in that regard of, of creating, not just the aura of that, but the substance of it. Uh, you know, many of my colleagues back then who, who are familiar with how to, you know, have a value conversation uh, would, would agree. You know, th- these are some of the foundational things of generating great client relationships and, and sustaining them. Nevertheless, um, I, I left with a, a, uh, another Xeroid to go out and sell sales training because we went, well, you know, look, now let's take what we've learned to the market, particularly small and mid-sized businesses that wouldn't have the, you know, fortunate kind of resources to invest in this kind of thing the way Xerox did. But we certainly could extend that on a, on a smaller scale. So we started doing value contracts. So basically it was, if we're going to come in and work with your sales force, you can pay us a small fee. But what we're interested in is the lift that we can achieve with, with your sales team. So if you're keen to do that, uh, after a period of time, six months to a year, we'll come back and take a percentage of the lift along you know, with some of the cover of our expenses. So um, it's sort of careful what you wish for. So we started with that thinking, okay, well, we're onto this. We're great salespeople. We're great sales trainers. We can do this. But we quickly discovered that there's something else here that we're missing. So sometimes we get into a, an intervention with a sales team and we discover, boy, the folks in here really don't fit um, this, the sales game that they're, that they're in right here. So. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're going to suffer financially for that. So we started to say, look, before we set up these agreements, let's get some baseline on who are these folks? What's the raw material like? And how well do they innately fit into um, the world of sales? So 
I started to investigate various instruments, assessments that would give us some insight before we got started and um, came across the caliper profile. I was actually introduced to it um, by a really good friend of mine, Kevin Higgins, who later went on, he was a Xerox guy too, but later on went on and developed a really successful um, sales effectiveness company. Um, so Kevin in, introduced me to Dr. Herb Greenberg, who um, later became my business partner in Caliper Canada. And what was interesting about what you know Herb had developed, which is you know this instrument called the Caliper Profile, which is a really robust job fit assessment. Um, Herb, you know, was one of the pioneers in this idea. And the idea was pretty simple, as great ideas often are. And that is, is that everybody have core strengths. We just need to have the instrumentation to figure out what they are and then align them to the nature of work. So those two pieces of the equation that I spoke of earlier, identifying who is this person, what motivates them, how do they, you know, what kind of style of thinking do they employ? And how do, how do those features line up to the competencies that drive performance in a job, whatever that job is? And so Herb at the time when I met him, um, I mean, he started the company in New York City, um, super interesting guy. He went blind at the age of 12 and managed uh, you know, an enormous amount of education to become a PhD psychologist in the in the you know late 50s and uh, early 60s. Most impressively, though, he he launched Caliper, cold calling on the streets of New York City, as a blind man, um, at a time when you know there were a lot of people um, from a from a talent pool perspective. The, you know the thinking of the day back in the 60s as Herb would often tell me is, hey, if Johnny doesn't work out, there's five people be, you know, behind him and we'll, you know, we'll take our chances with them. So the, the bounty of talent was out there. And so the attitudes from corporate perspective were just move on. Um, so think about, you know, selling a service that says, hold on, before you hire Johnny, why don't we get a sense of how well he fits into the, the job. And let's dig into the job and really understand what drives performance in it. And so uh, by the time I had met Herb, they had done literally millions of profiles on a global basis. This uh, uh, led to research around workplace performance and um, really interesting stuff about what is it that drives performance in leadership, management, what are the distinctions between those two things, and um, any kind of individual contributor work from sales, service, technical work. Um, there were really, you know, Herb would often, he was a prolific speaker. He would often say, there, you know, there, uh, there isn't a job on the planet that we haven't assessed with the exception of, um, you know, political folks. And they would make real uh, interesting research if we could do that. <laughs> so um, long and the short of it is, is 
we had this huge central database of uh, information on people, like personality traits. Uh, Twenty-one of them is is you know that are measured mm-hmm. to get a really um, you know very accurate picture of who that person is. Um, so, for example, um, we would measure things like: Are you conscientious? Mm-hmm. Um, are you a big picture thinker, or do you like to think, you know, more linearly about things? Do you? Um, what's your disposition for risk? Um, are you naturally somebody that springs back after setbacks, or do you sort of grind on them for a while? So, all these insights are there for the taking, and they're quite material because if you have the awareness of these things before you start considering um, what you might want to be doing next. Um, it's enormously helpful, not, not, not only for the individual, but for the employer who you know, might want to say, hey, Jordan, we understand that you've got like five of the things that we really value here. Um, but there are, you know, there are a couple of things that we want to focus on developmentally. And we kind of have a you know constructive conversation about what is it that this is identified? Are you aware of it? Is it is it true in your estimation? And most importantly, what do we do to make sure that you're successful in the end? So um, it it really informs everybody, the individual, the employer, on what is it that we should do to make sure that Jordan's successful. Yes. Yes. Andrew, I want to speak about Dr. Greenberg. Before I do that, I'm very interested. So when you left Xerox, did you and your partner, your Xeroid, start that on your own? Yeah. Like you weren't with a company. So you just, and and the other interesting thing is you were like, you know, we want to get paid on the upside. So you took a lot of risk at that time. I'm sure you were younger you probably still had the same hair for those that don't see andrew's got a better set of hair than i do (laughs) maybe your mom was right about that was she right about the tan or not and and just quickly (laughs) did you ever take up drumming i just i did last summer there you go that's what i was wondering because i i i played the drums in high school and always loved it it's a great thing but where did that element of risk come in for you to be like, we're just going to leave Xerox and and give this a shot. And, and we're going to take on the upside. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I look at my own caliper results, it's evident in those. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, you know, very low in caution. I'm very Mm -hmm. high in this quality we call venturesome. Um, so I'm, I'm innately disposed to say, hey, you know, like, and, and I'm low in skepticism. So mm-hmm. I, I tend to think that the glass is certainly half full and that there's a high likelihood that this great idea, whatever it is, is going to be successful. So that is one of the things that I, I know is hardwired into me. And so on that note, Um, I think I took a lot of risks that I didn't fully understand. Um, There's that term, you know, ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. So some of that did come into play for sure. I think it was just my innate wiring that said, look, um, this is a good idea. Leave that Fortune 500 company 
go into this because it's a damn good idea and I can see light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it was any more complicated than that. And I think one of the things that I've, I've come to, to uh, appreciate now, um, we, did it, we did a little bit of work uh, over the years uh, at Caliper with Anthony Robbins. Yeah. Um, so um, one, of, one of the things that he would promote endlessly is this idea of make make decisions mm -hmm. um, and and you know be thoughtful about it and be as, as as informed as you can about it but make the damn decision right because there's a lot of consternation that can go on should i shouldn't i should i shouldn't you know and, and depending on your innate kind of qualities some people are more apt to do that grinding for a long time and never actually make a call and others will be, you know, quite fluid and they'll, and they'll say, look, that's a good idea. Let's do it. Um, so we're all on that end, you know, we're all on the spectrum of that somewhere, whether you're apt to take action or not. But uh, for me, I think one of the things that was fortunate was that I, I didn't tend to spend too much time analyzing that I would take action. What did, was there any external people, parents, family, friends that were like, man, Andrew, what are you doing? You're leaving a big company trying to do this thing? Yeah, it's funny. As I recollect, my parents were kind of silent on the issue. Okay. Because my dad was more entrepreneurial in nature. So, you know, I think they're like, like all personality, these things are, there's genetic wires here, right? So it wasn't a as long as it was a decent idea, I don't think that they were ever, you know, terrified by it because they live their lives that way as well. Um, do you still, and sort of intrude, do you, do you still make decisions like that? And do you, it sounds like you're really, you're really great at making, making decisions, like taking in information and then deciding and moving forward. And I, I do think this is challenging for a lot of people, especially twenties and thirties. Is there any advice you can offer? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think I have learned a fair bit because let's face it, not all the decisions turn out great. Yes. You know, or do they line up exactly the way you conceive of them? So, um, but what I, what I have learned um, through lots of different great examples around me and my own experience is the reason why you should take action after you've given some consideration to whatever the idea is. In particular today, it's, it's quite material. Even if your action doesn't produce the outcome that you were looking for, you can iterate mm -hmm. and, and, and the world that we live in today, iteration is far more available than it was. So a really quick example, like when I was in university with like my peers, when we would write an essay, um, you, had, you did it on a typewriter, right? And the eight and a half by 11 page was there. And if you made a mistake on it, you, we had some, method to go and correct it but it started to look sloppy if you were a crappy typer like I was so the commitment that you made to to it and the focus you had to put into the, the page at the moment was you know 
pretty significant. Well, today, you know, of course, we type stuff and we just ramble through it. And some of it's being automatically corrected. And certainly you have the opportunity to go back and, and make it, you know, iterations on it with not a lot of pain and suffering. So, uh, you know, I remember, you know, wanting to throw my Underwood typewriter out the window after I've made like eight mistakes on the eight and a half by 11 page. And you got to do it over, right? So that, that was the pain and suffering. So now I think the implications around the kinds of decisions that we can make and whether they're permanent um, is not as graphic. Uh, I, and I think that if you have that mindset, then you're more uh, likely to have, you know, good happenstance things, you know, uh, come into play. Like, I so as a quick example, I, I took a flyer on setting up case solutions, business culture advisors. I look back on that now and I go, you, you're, you know, you're a village idiot. You just took you know, you're at how, how old were you at the time, Andrew? Uh, I think I would have been, it would have been in my early thirties. Okay. Um, you know, starting, starting out with a family, you know, certainly had responsibilities. Right. Um, but I was enamored with this idea that if we can articulate business culture to business leaders, then they would have the upper hand in driving performance in their organizations. And that, that was the idea. Well, that's a very, you know, I just said it in like eight seconds, but that's a really difficult subject to hang up and try to stand up a consulting firm on. Yeah. You know, and the biggest consulting firms of the, of the day, they weren't talking about that. Like th that, no, no, that's way too complicated. And so, on that note, you know, I was a village idiot. Like we had some really lean years in the seven years that we ran that practice um, because it's, it was hard, you know, simple idea, but hard to, you know, get your hands around, measure it, articulate it to leaders, have them believe that being more genuinely aligned to their culture and who they were uh, would produce a better business outcome. So it was really quite challenging. The fortunate thing, though, is as as you know, reckless as that may have been, it did lead to meeting uh, Dr. Herb Greenberg and relaunching Caliper. Um, he essentially bought our uh, consulting practice in 2003 uh, because he said, "Well, you guys, you guys are working in an area that we want to extend into." the current joint venture uh, of the, you know, the time wasn't working well in Canada. So how about mm -hmm. we, we buy you and you relaunch it with your partner. And I said, fantastic. So when I look back on it, it's one thing leads to another. And had I been really conservative, um, certainly those opportunities wouldn't, wouldn't have come along. Yeah. That's, you know, my career coach sometimes says to me, you just have to go through kind of the next door or the next opportunity. And you don't know where that's going to lead. Like you yeah. didn't, you didn't know that was going to lead to Dr. Dr. Greenberg. Right. And, and no. I saw a really interesting quote and I wonder if you can react to it. Um, he said at one point, the real winner in the world are those people who are in the positions that really let them 
play to their strengths. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's really the, the idea that the entire caliper, um, you know, concept was built on is if we can discover those things and point people in the right way, um, that that'll be superior. Obviously, there are people, my, you know, my wife um, is one of them who, you know, spent 29 years as a school teacher. I don't think there was a day in her life going, growing up and going to university, um, being academically really strong. Uh, I don't think there was a day in her life where she didn't know that that's where she was going to end up. So that, you know, that's a very fortunate thing for people to have there are but I think in in my experience very few people have that kind of clarity you know of of destination so for the rest of us it's really challenging I when I when I look at her I think she had uh, you know a number of things going for her one was that she's academically like a wizard like there isn't any subject matter you could put her into and she wouldn't come out you know, at the top of her class. And she's since gone on to, um, as a retired teacher to become a registered psychotherapist, went back and did wow. an MA and <clears throat> runs a really, um, a really helpful and successful practice. But the, but, you know, the, the parts of her, when, when I think about it, she has really high self-awareness about what it is that gratifies her from a work point of view. And the, some of the foundational things have always been a connection to helping people, right? Yes. Whether yes. those are, you know, grade three students or, you know, adults that are at crossroads in their lives in some fashion. So that, that, you know, that kind of clarity is really impressive, but it's not common, you know? So I think most of us arrive at these points in our life, you know, at the end of end of some sort of schooling or training um, and you go, and you go, well, what, what, what do I want to do? And I, and I think you can, you can sort of think about the options. uh, But the, uh, the unfortunate part is, is that nobody, and I I've been in this business now for, you know, 30 plus years. uh, I'm still learning about jobs that I had no idea existed. So how could an 18, 19, 20 year old, or even 40, 40 year old person who's, you know, pivoting out of their, what they've done for a decade or two, how, how would they possibly know, you know, what, what's next? So you can do investigation. You can talk to your, you know, your uh, circle of influence to try and understand what it is people do, which is all really helpful. But I think at some point, early on, you've got to listen to what is it that I, I'm motivated by, do some research on it, but then get to some action, you know, and get, and I think that's the key point, right? Yeah. Like get to that action, just get into it. And, um, you don't have to hit it out of the park and be terrific at the job. What you do need to do is emerge out of it and say, well, is, is that something that I'm really interested in? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think one of the key differences is, um, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't this sort of pressure to say, well, 
we're going to invest $130,000 in a business post post-secondary degree, business degree. So you better come out of that and get a business job, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so none of that really existed to the extent that it does today. Like our daughter, you just, you know, completed a degree at Dalhousie University and like her mom, top of the class, came out of the four years um, and said, I don't think I really, I'm not that interested in business. So now she's on to the next chapter of academics to go to teacher's college, um, which is all great. You know, like I think at some point you want to come out and be productive, but um, you got to take action. You can't just sit on the sidelines and go, I wonder what that's like, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you nailed it. And, and teacher's college is a funny one, Andrew, because my mother was a teacher, my sister became a teacher, my aunt was a teacher, and now my fiance, who's been a flight attendant, is in teacher's college. And growing up, I don't know if it was because I had so many teachers around me, I, I didn't think, I didn't even think of it. A lot of my friends didn't even think about it. And now you look at some of how they help people, how they get to lead the next, the future generation. And plus how in Canada, at least, or in Ontario, they can get compensated well and have some great perks as well. They work extremely hard, but I just always find that one interesting how some people don't even think of that. So good on your daughter. And with that, I wanted to touch on resiliency. Like it's not a straight line. My podcast is about you know, resiliency, the bounce back, actually all of the things we're speaking about and how it's hard to kind of, it's not hard, but it's, it's, it's always a challenge to find your way in your life and your career. You know, resiliency, and I think of this incredible person you were able to meet and your business partner, Dr. Herb Greenberg. This is someone who lost their eyesight, did a master's and bachelor's degree, then did a PhD. And then you're telling me he was on the road just he was just cold calling people in the 60s yeah about this stuff yeah like wh what did you learn what did you learn from him in terms of resilience because even as someone who lost their eyesight he could have just been like well i'm just just mailing it in yeah yeah no i mean he's there's there's more than resilience obviously he was a really driven character he he was um you know, again, academically strong. Uh, he was an innovative guy, like a, 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 you know, truly innovative for his time to say that, to, to even come forward to, to say, look, everybody has strengths. This notion of equality, particularly in the United States, not, it's not a knock on them, it's just sort of a fact. Um, he, he swam against the current in a lot of ways. Um, and, um, even, you know, in his early days, he, he got fired from um, uh, a professorship in, in the southern U.S. after standing too hard on women's rights and equality and things. So wow. this goes, he went back a, a long way. So I don't know if it was, you know, him, you know, being an underdog and wanting to support the underdog. Uh, I don't think it was that he really diminished his, his um, blindness. You know, I remember 
uh, introducing him once to a, uh, we had him up and um, he did like a, a press conference and so on. And we had about a hundred people invited. He, he did not want to mention his, his blindness. And so it was a little bit of like a, an elephant in the room, but he, he said, you know, like early on people would make that the subject and yes. it's really not yes. the point. Yes. The point is, is that we're talking about performance and how people who are high performers, you know, generate economic value, generate individual happiness to, you know, use a fairly broad term. So he was really interested in all these ideas um, and, and very, uh, you know, prolific in his ability to generate those ideas further into what are the mechanics required to get to job fit and, and performance. And he, you know, he took that to you know, a lot of different venues. Um, was he resilient? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do I think that that was a learned thing? It could have been, but in, in, cal in our caliper world, um, resilience is one of these things that, um, again, on a spectrum, you're either, you know, born with a lot of it on one end or not so much on the other. And it comes down to, um, you know, are you self-critical? Like when there's a setback, do you then beat the hell out of yourself all day long? That would be low resilience. Mm. Or do you just say, look, don't want that to happen again. What do we do to ensure that that doesn't occur again? And you don't internalize it much. So those things can be measured. Um, and I think that's the, that, that is the key is that you're not really in control of how much God given resilience you've been, you know, dispensed, but you, you certainly with uh, awareness can manage much better. And, you know, some of, uh, some folks that go through therapy of various types, like cognitive behavior therapy, this is partly what goes on is, you know, for those people that are really sensitive and have low resilience and tend to be self-critical, that therapy is designed to say, well, let's, you know, let's examine the layers of that and see exactly what is, is it that you're in control of? And what mm -hmm. is it that you're perhaps not in control of? And when you go through that, you'll discover uh, there's an awful lot that you might be subscribing blame to yourself for that you're not really in control of. So some of those therapies are really helpful for people like that. If you had a way to understand that out of the gate, that's, that's the, I think, the, the, the helpful part is that you'll be able to anticipate, look, in this job, you get kicked in the teeth a lot. So, and because you're already here kind of beating yourself up, what are we going to do when you get kicked in the teeth? How are we going to help manage you so that you don't spend two weeks working yourself over and instead come back 24 hours later with a new, a new idea and a new attitude. So the, resilience is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, you know, thank you. I was able to go through the resilience questionnaire that, that Caliper and, and Waltology offers. And it was extremely interesting, even yeah. to understand uh, from your colleague, like, you know, Hey, I had seeking support is kind of higher in my range. And then self-belief was 
still kind of in the middle, but understanding that if self-belief was really low and seeking support was really high, that might be, you know, either that I, I, I'm, if I get this wrong, correct me, but might be that I don't have as much confidence in myself, or I am always people pleasing and asking for permission from others. And I know that early in my career, I did that a lot. I tried to get that permission from people. Yeah. And of course, uh, like we were talking about off the top, this stuff is pretty complicated. So when you mm -hmm. take one feature like resilience or one feature like empathy, um, it's kind of like focusing on one part of your body yeah. uh, and, and not recognizing that it's attached to other things and that there's, a, uh, there's these interdependencies that go on. Same thing in personality, right? So there's a lot of ingredients that you would layer on to a concept like resilience to say, well, what, what's motivating resilience? Um, I'll give you a really quick example to talk about the complexity of this. We did a lot of work in professional sport over the last yes. 40 years um, in all three major leagues in, in the Americas. And um, so we had this talent pool that we were asked to measure draft candidates. If you're in the draft of any of the you know, NBA and NHL, MLB, you're good. Like technically um, and experientially, you're, you are unbelievable, right? The question is, is are you a good fit for the role of, um, uh, that the team might have in mind for you? And um, we would measure that and come back and say, Johnny's, you know, certainly an innate leader. Uh, so if you're going to throw that jacket on on him and make it part of his job, um, good. If he's not, then watch out. And we've had lots of examples of that where they take a really talented player, make them the leader, encumber them with those duties and expectations, only to find out that it erodes their individual contributor job, but it also brings the rest of the squad down because mm -hmm. they're not very, they're not motivated or inclined or adept at leading the team. And we often do that in organizational life. We take great individual contributors in sales and service and technical work, and we make them managers just because they're good at that. Not recognizing these are fundamentally different jobs, different competencies. So the one example that we, that we ran into in professional sport all the time was uh, we would take these dimensions that we measure in a caliper as an example, and we would roll them up into a vernacular that would work for general managers and coaches. <clears throat> so we'd be taking those raw things that we measure and we'd roll it up and say, uh, what, what's uh, Johnny's innate tendency around uh, being a, um, a good uh, uh, team player? Are they self-disciplined? Are they innately uh, competitive? And we get to that competitive one and they'd say, well, there's no way that these kids aren't competitive. And, and they weren't wrong, but what they were wrong about is the, is the way they formulated the competence of, of being competitive. So mm -hmm. as an example, you can take a, an A-type competitor um, and all you have to do is spend, you know, an interview, like an hour with them to understand behaviorally 
are they an A-type competitor? And that's the person who is always competing. It doesn't matter what the game is. That if you tell a story, they're going to tell a better one. If you're going to go out and have a drink, they're going to drink more. You know, they're going to, everything is a game that they're going to beat you at, right? And the motivation is to beat you and to make you understand that they beat you. Yes. So that's an A-type, A-type competitor. And most of the folks in professional sport would be able to identify that on their own. They don't need any fancy instrument. Um, but what they would miss, uh, and by the way, that A-type competitor, they're almost always extroverted. Like they're loud, right? They are in your face and they're making it know, you know, everybody know this is why they're special. The other type of competitor though that would, would get missed is the introvert who is a perfectionist that has a really high need to please. So think about mm. that. How can that person be competitive? Well, they're competitive, first of all, because they're talented in the draft, you know, they're there in the draft, but um, those are the folks that practice the technical stuff over and over and over again, right? And the, and the, the, the fundamental um, inspiration for them or motivation is to please somebody. It could be their parents, it could be a coach, other players, they don't want to let anybody down, right? That produces the same competitive output as the A-type, but they come from completely different places. So, you know, the old adage that there's more than one way to skin the cat uh, is really true. And it applies to almost every competence in work where we can say, look, there, there's, not one, there's not just one way to produce that competency. There's more than one way. And if we have uh, the right kind of measures, we'll, we'll figure it out. And that is really helpful for coaches. It's really helpful for hiring managers. It's helpful for the individuals who know that they're going in and they're not gonna be maybe like the rest of the guys on the team who you know, are loud and boisterous and, and yes. um, that's okay. If everybody understands that they are still very competent, they just do it differently, then we're in a much better place. So would, uh, would Tom Brady who just retired, like he, he seems to me as competitive. I, I, we could have spent a whole episode, I'm sure, talking about the signs. <laughs> uh, Andrew, what would you like, you know, companies to know if they're interested in reaching out to you or working with Talogy and where can people find you? Is it best to email or are you on any of those socials out there? We're, we're on all that social stuff, uh, according to our, our really talented marketing folks. But, I, you know, quickest way would be through the website, Talogy.com. And um, you'll see... Uh, you know, the wide range of services that we have around. I mean, they're all aimed at the same kinds of things. We're interested in how do we produce uh, superior uh, performance outcomes in organizations, teams, and individuals. And we have a myriad of uh, really um, well-researched instruments to do that. And we've got Apparently now we've got more 
uh, PhD psychologists than any single organization on the planet. So we've assembled a group of people that are really quite talented and um, adept at understanding, you know, what is it that the organization is, you know, wanting to achieve? Uh, what's their strategy to get there? And then we come in to say, well, this is how you would assemble the workforce to deliver on that. Yeah. And it just amazes me when you speak about the PhDs in psychology and there's so much science behind this. You know, we could have another episode in a year all about that. Is it something I'm interested in? Andrew, thanks so much, firstly, for being on the show. I have three zigzag questions. I just call them zigzag because it's not a straight line. And I'm going to input a new one in here to kick it off because one of your colleagues I spoke to was very interested in this. So you can just answer in a quick phrase or two. Andrew, how did you develop your leadership style? I hear it's pretty admired. Is there any any short thing you can comment on your leadership style about? I, uh, you know, it's sort of a, I think it's a mix of, you know, people that I've admired in the past uh, that I've worked for, my managers. Um, and some that I didn't, you know, that I didn't enjoy. Um, and then, um, you know, back to what's innate. I, I know myself a, a bit better now. I, I kind of know where, from a management point of view, I have to amp things up and pay more attention because it's not going to come naturally. So just with that awareness, I think it's helpful. Um, you know, sometimes I, I'm not as thoughtful as I could be um, because I have a propensity to take action and get things done. So sometimes it's like, oh, wait, here you need to slow down and um, listen a little longer and be a bit more thoughtful. So, yeah, stuff like that. It's, uh, it's, it's a mix, Jordan, you know, like, yeah. and you get this... Um, you get feedback and some people are good at hearing and, and, you know, feeling the feedback and others are just like, it's water off a duck's back. So some of, uh, some of that I've, you know, had to learn the evolving product is hopefully, you know, you do a good job for people and you take interest in their career and um, seeing them have success and deal with, you know, any number of, of, uh, hurdles that you have to overcome on the way. That's a great answer. Is there something you'd tell your 20 or 30 self looking back now where you are in your career in life? Yeah. Um, I think, I think I could have saved myself some, some, uh, pain and suffering by doing just a little bit more research uh, because, you know, I tended to take action so quickly and not be yes. very detail oriented. And, you know, as they say, sometimes the devil is in the details and I'm surrounded by people at Talogy that live in that light, in that world. And, uh, I marvel at their ability to stay focused on those things. And sometimes they're really material and sometimes they're not so much, right? Because by the time you look at the, all the detail, um, the world moved and uh, they don't matter. And so sometimes that's the case. I think on balance though, if I had just spent a little bit more time uh, asking a few more questions, then it would have saved some pain. But 
I don't know. Does that disrupt, you know, um, the course? Yeah, the for, flow. You don't know. Yeah, for the, you know, the natural kind of. And as I said, as as time is going by, our ability to iterate these these decisions that we make are, you know, is is oiled up. You know, you you don't necessarily if if the goal uh, is no longer relevant, change it. And and so we have the ability to do that pretty, you know, quickly. I love that. If the goal is no longer relevant, change it. And then the last question, Andrew, is like, what still gets you up in the morning and drives you to to really, really perform at work or something to do in your life as a father? What's your drive? I think it's curiosity. Like, okay. I, it's the one thing that I, uh, one quality that I have, I don't know where it comes from, but it, there are certain subjects that I, I always get criticized at home, you know, uh, by my family, because when I'm around somebody that does something that I'm interested in, uh, I tend to pepper them with questions. So, uh, and, and they think it's like, oh my gosh, just, you know, take your foot off the gas. But I, I think it's truly because I, I like to know what's it like, how does it work? Uh, that stuff. And, and, you know, we're fortunate here at Talogy that we, we kind of have to do that with our clients. We've got to get in there and go, well, what do you do here? How does it work? And examine, you know, what are those things that drive the outcome? That's great. And we share that curiosity uh, between the two of us. So Andrew, thank you so much for spending time with, with myself and the listener for passing on your thoughts, um, wishing you all the best. And I hope you keep up drumming. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Never stop. (laughs) What did you take away from our chat today? I'd love to know. Let me know on Instagram at it's not a straight line or connect with me on LinkedIn. If this episode was helpful, would you mind leaving me a review on whatever podcast app you use? I'd really appreciate it. You can always go back to previous episodes to hear more insightful conversations to help you build your own unique life. Thanks for listening to It's Not a Straight Line. Until next time.